Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. We are wrapping up our season here in just a few more episodes. Our podcast runs from August to through October when the track for the full track is open. This week, well, weekend was a little rainy. However, Friday night was pretty exciting. There were two chase races, and my wife in the novice division, she won her first chase race. She was very excited. It was fantastic to see her win. After the chase races, we had three garage crawls, which had an awesome turnout. I mean, it was it was incredible. Three garages, uh, three of the newer ones. We stopped the had uh, appetizers, dinner, and desserts. So it was it was just a lot of fun. It was really cool to see some of the members' garages and see what they have done and how they set them up and designed them and decorated them. I really enjoyed that evening out at the track. The Saturday was supposed to rain, but uh, the rain stayed off um, for uh, a little while. I got to do a couple sessions on the track. My son got to go out, and then uh, he also uh, got to do a little bit of, of karting. Had a friend show up, so they did. I were able to get on the kart track. Our interview this week is with David Stevens. He's the manager of Fall Line Motorsports at the Audubon. Of the four different race shops here, they all kind of manage uh, different kind of vehicles, or at least different makes and models. Fall Line uh, does all cars, but primarily BMWs, and we learn all about uh, David, and it was really pretty cool. I had not been in, in Fall Line, and we just went over there Friday just to stop in because I wanted to introduce myself and, and look around and met David, and he was very welcoming and it was it was a lot of fun to get to know him so uh i i hope to stop in there different times just to say hi that's uh it was just a cool place to be and very interesting i as the shows we do here on the audubon country club podcast our interview shows where we really dive into the person and get to know them and today we have a great interview so let's welcome david stevens on the audubon country club podcast motor in the background. They're interfering with it? No. I like that as the background. Oh, okay. As yeah. the background. <laughs> yeah. As the background noise. Um, yeah, you have a great great place here to listen to those motorcycles. Um, say your full name for me. David Stevens. And, uh, well, welcome to the Audubon Country Club podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited to find out. Well, first of all, it's... Um, September 21st. Yes. September 21st, and uh, let's see, 10 a.m. on, we think might be a rainy or nice day, uh, on the north track in the Fall Line, um, is, it full, is it Fall Line Motorsports? Yeah, Fall Line Motorsports, and this is a, this is a satellite garage. The, the, main, um, the main facility is in Buffalo Grove on the north side of Chicago. So this is just a, a satellite facility we keep here for members who have had their cars built or worked on by Fallline and uh, 
give them the opportunity to keep their cars down here kind of for an a ride and drive experience. Ah, okay. Well, wh where, did, wh where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was born in England and I grew up in England um, and Australia. So uh, I have a bit of an Australian accent. Oh, so where in England did you grow up? Um, I was born in London and I grew up mostly on the south coast area between uh, the coast and London in areas around there. And how, how old were you when you went to um, Australia? Um, about eight, I believe. Oh, about eight. So yeah, so you still have time to, yeah. to develop that Australian. Yeah. So when people... Probably less than that, actually. I think I was six. Six? Yeah, I was about six. So do you think you have more of an Australian or more of an English I don't accent? know. I don't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, other people comment that they look at me with a quizzical look and say, what are you, Australian or English? And I go, well, I'm English, but apparently I have a little Australian. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you, where in Australia did you live? I lived in Canberra, in the, uh, which is the capital city. My father worked for, he was a diplomat with the, um, for Britain, and um, so that he was posted there. Oh, what kind of work did he do? Just he was a he was a he was in the admin area of the British High Commission, um, doing visas and immigration and all that kind of thing. Ah, I see. In, how how in long? Australia. How long was he there? Or how long were you there? About six years. And then he came back to England. Yeah, went back to England to boarding school. Oh, he went to boarding school. Mm -hmm. So. My every one of my friends, so the producer of the podcast, Mark McFarland, he went to boarding school, mm. and he loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he says it's a gr one of the greatest thing ever. And all of my friends that I know, the few friends I know that went to boarding school, also. Before I tell you what they, what did you think? Did you enjoy boarding school? Did you like it? Well, back to your, um, do you do you like it or not? I mean, you really have nothing to compare it to. I mean, you only have one life, and my life was at boarding school. I can't say it was bad. I loved it. Um, but I was fortunate in that the boarding school I went to was not like a military boarding school. Um, it had a slight uh, slant towards being a Christian school, but that wasn't, um, that wasn't a hardship in any way. Um, and uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience. I enjoyed it a lot. I think they pushed us quite hard. I think I probably achieved more academically than I would have achieved left to my own devices at a, uh, at a grammar school, living at home or so, because they, they pushed you pretty hard to achieve. And, um, but we also had great facilities for sports. Um, we don't have it. We didn't have it when I was there, but now I've been back to the school since, and they have a go-kart club. So, so, so they have. I've read facility. about this. They have a facility, and they actually promote kids to move through um, motor racing. And if they want to get involved, it's become such a a big part of England now, with all the Formula One teams and all the, all the stuff going on there, that you can actually think about making a career in motorsports. And there's um, there's a college in Oxford that uh, takes you up to a degree level in engineering. And uh, so the, the kids there really have a, to my mind, a great opportunity. I mean, when I was there, it was cricket and football and swimming. But these kids, you know, they get it all. So This is so cool. <clears throat> well, that also, all of my friends say they absolutely loved it. Wouldn't change anything. They were so happy they went to boarding school. Mm -hmm. So I, someone told me about this school. So I actually, last month, looked it up. And I go, I'm going to send my kid there. 
<laughs> I'm going to send my kid there. And that was the school I looked because one of the young men at that school won like the local championship last, or like the, the, the national championship last year that goes to that school. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that, but yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for the kids. Really yeah, so what's the name of the school? Uh, the, the school I went to was King Edward School Whitley. Okay. Known as KESW. Wow, that's that's cool. That's cool. So, and uh, I don't know. I I look back on it, and when I grew up here in Central Illinois in the seventies, and no one left for there was one kid. We heard a rumor that got shipped to military school, mm. you know. And I had a, I did have a cousin who got shipped to military school, but that was not. I mean, not being on the East Coast, there was, you know, for me. And no one just, I just didn't know that there was a pro, you know deal, but I would have loved looking back on it. I would have loved to have gone to boarding school. Yeah, it was quite. It was good. It was. I I have a lot of friends who went to um, boarding school who were in a similar situation that I was, where my parents were working abroad and the kids were shipped back to England to go to school, and most of them ended up in all boys schools. Um, but the school I went to. Uh, was a co-ed school. It was one of the few in England at the time where they took girls and boys. And so um, it was kind of a normal growing up in that you you had, there was girls around and there was boys around and we grew up together. It wasn't a case of um, you grow up in the boarding school for eight or ten years and when you get to meet a girl in a pub you have no idea what to say to her. <laughs> I mean, we, right. I, think our, I think our situation was much more normal. And it, it um, I, I liked it. It was good. That's cool. That's cool. And are, are your parents, are your parents still around? Are they? My mother died of cancer, unfortunately, but my father's still around, yeah. Is he, in, he in still England? lives in England, yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. What did she, so your mom was working too. What did she, what did she do? Well, she, she, she worked with, um, my father was the one who took the job all over the world. And when, uh, when they were there, my mother usually found something to do. Okay, um, some... She was most often working in a library. She, she would find, maybe not a public library, but I remember one time she worked in the English department of a library, in, um, a Japanese library. Oh, yeah. Um, I, think that was, I think that was in Australia, but I'm not sure. I can't remember really well. Did you live any other, did he go a bunch of other different places? Oh, yeah, I mean, we first went. Our first trip abroad, when I was born, I think I was three weeks old, we went to um, what was then Rhodesia, now mm -hmm. Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. And then from there we went to uh, Malaya, which is now Malaysia. And from there we went to back to England for a little while and then to Australia. And then my parents carried on traveling and I used to visit them on uh, holidays, but they went to, um, from Australia, they went to Iran and then to uh, Ghana, and then to, I believe, uh, Malta, then Singapore, and then my father ended up in Lebanon um, for a little while, and then he retired. Did he have a, play, a favorite place, or did you have a favorite place that you visited? I think, his, well, I think one of his favorite places was Australia. I think we all loved Australia. We were very lucky. We were... We were in a great new city of Canberra, which had been designed to be the capital city on the um, inland from Sydney. Um, we lived on the outskirts of the town. Uh, we were one of the last houses before you just looked out and saw bush. There was no, there wasn't even farms. So as a kid, it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, really, really nice open freedom. Just 
ability to do anything he wanted. Um, it's changed a little bit now, and I, d I had a lot of friends at that time who I left when I went to boarding school. They stayed in Canberra, and of course when they got into their teens, the appeal wasn't quite so great anymore. And uh, that was the time when they all wanted to get out and move to the city. They wanted to go to Sydney or Melbourne or wherever, and that's where they all ended up. None of them, none of them stayed in Canberra, which surprised me because it was such a great city as to grow up as a little kid, but not as, a, not as an older kid, apparently, because there wasn't anything there for older kids. Hmm. So that was just an interesting side note. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I can't wait to go. I, my son's best friend, one of his best friends, is they go quite often there. His aunt lives there. You know, mm -hmm. to Australia, and so, um, and my only time in in, in England, uh, I was deployed <coughs> deployed in the Middle East back in two thousand three, and one of the um, <coughs> I was flying C one thirties in the Air Force, and one of the fuel cells went bad, and the only place to fix the fuel cell was in um, outside of Cambridge, and I can't remember what base it was, but outside of Cambridge, so. Um, I was lucky enough to to get on that get on that flight, and the I think the thing was like, oh, we're supposed to fly in and get in at six o'clock in the morning, and they'll have it fixed, and you guys will be out by six a.m. the next day. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we got there on Friday, and they don't work on the weekends, so they couldn't get the airplane in. <laughs> and this is after me living, you know, in a tent with sand everywhere, you know, and it took me and. Anyway, so I, I have fond, fond memories of trying to find the best fish and chips in all of, in all of England. Yeah, so that was a good quest. That was, yeah. I had them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> <laughs> all over the place. It was great. It was yeah. great. I think we turned that day trip into like a week. There you go. Nice. <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was fantastic. I, I do remember one of the loadmasters, his first night's bar bill at the Marriott in Cambridge... So I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Marriott. He didn't go anywhere. He was an older guy. And um, um, his first night's bar bill was over $800. Good grief. But he was buying... Everybody drinks. Everybody. We were it drinking to like every... To get around people that were speaking, you know, English to us. And we just... It was a warm memory, that's for sure. Um, All good. So how, how did you... Or, or what was the, what was your first car you had? Or... What was your first exposure to, to cars and in the boarding school? Did kids have their own cars? I, sure, I was actually um, working on race cars before I had a car of my own. I, I had a motorcycle um, that I used to ride around on and a bicycle. I've always been keen on bicycling, so I ride around on a bicycle. And I took a job working on race cars at uh, the Goodwood Motor Circuit, uh, which was is very famous now for the Goodwood um, days that they have there, the vintage days. But back then, this was in between when it was famous, when it first, its first iteration, and then as it is now, it was kind of just a derelict um, aerodrome. But uh, there was a gentleman there had a, a, a shop where he prepared Formula Ford cars, and I went to work for him. How old were you at this time? Um, I would guess, I was 18, I think. 
18. Okay. We, we don't drive young in England like you do. You, don't, you can't even get a driving license in England until you're about 18 at that oh. time. So, um, you know, having a car wasn't a big deal like it is. I came to America and used to hear a friend say, oh, I had my first car at 14 and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, my license at 16. And that's, to me, that's just amazing. You, you <laughs> lucky kids. Um, but uh, we, we, did, we didn't work that way. So I rode my bicycle to work on race cars. I finally got my first car when I was... Uh, probably uh, 19, and it was uh, a car you've probably not heard of. It's called a Singer Chamois, and it's the uh, it was basically a Hillman Imp with uh, twin headlights and a slightly better engine. <laughs> it was a good little car. It was great fun. It was a rear engine car. So it was in a, what was it called? The Singer Singer Chamois. Sh- Singer Chamois. Was it English? Yeah. The Singer was basically the company that made sewing machines way, way, way back when. Sure, yeah, yeah. But they did, they did make cars for a period. And, and, oh, that's right. Yeah, and then yeah. Hillman, who were the company that owned, um, they made the Imp. They owned the name Singer. And when they made an Imp that was a little bit better than their standard Imp and put twin headlights on it and souped it up a little bit, they put the Singer name on it. That's there. So uh, twin headlights was Lexus a big was Toyota, I suppose. Yeah. So twin headlights was a big upgrade. <laughs> oh, that was huge. Oh, that was yeah, that was massive. That was an extra switch on the dash. Was, uh... <laughs> what year was this? What year is this car? Is it? Uh, I can't. I can't remember what year it was. The car must have been about. My guess would be it was about a seventy-two, seventy-one, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I think. That's awesome. That's a long awesome. time ago. So you start working at the the place that's working on race cars, and how? What did you start? You just started. Did they um, when you came in? What kind of stuff did you do originally? I started sweeping the floors, and then um, because I was free and single, and really wanted to do it, I got to travel with the cars, and um, so I drove the truck, loaded everything, took it to the racetrack. Sometimes we would do. Um, two racetracks in a weekend. It, we, we would do a race at uh, one track on a Saturday and then another race at another track on a Sunday. So there was a lot of traveling about and we had this um, this Bedford van that we built ourselves that carried three cars and we could tow a little caravan behind it. <laughs> and so we would put ourselves on the road and uh, head off and go and just have fun. I mean, it was, it was a real adventure. We would go all over all over England to all the small circuits, um, including some of the big ones. We'd go to Brands Hatch and Silverstone, but we'd also go to Castle Coombe and Croft and Alton Park, Thruxton, Cadwell Park, all these smaller circuits that didn't host the really big races in those days. But uh, they were great fun, really, really grassroots racing, literally, because when you parked your car, you were on the grass and you worked on the grass. And uh, it was good fun. That was awesome, and so that was your introduction to to, mm-hmm. to racing. And then where where did it go after the? Well, the, the the big disappointment that happened for us is around that time the fuel crisis hit Britain, and um, racing was pretty much cancelled. Um, it became you weren't allowed to uh, take fuel from a gas station in a container which really hurt us because we used to get all our fuel in jerry cans and then put them in the truck and really and you weren't allowed to do that you were only allowed to fill up with maybe five or six gallons at the gas station and what, into your car what years was this is this the this was around um 
must have been around 77, 78, 79, something like that. And um, so pretty much the company that I worked for, the guy who owned it didn't have the financial wherewithal to keep it going and, and decided that his best way out was to get rid of the cars as quickly as we could. And uh, they were still allowing racing in Ireland. So we, we found buyers for our cars in Ireland and we took them over there and we sold them and that was pretty much the end of our... I think the company continued with just the one guy at the helm doing work on other people's cars. But as far as racing was concerned, it was all over. And so I took a job, um, another job over in London. And uh, the company that I went to work for was an engineering company. We were a big machine shop. They, um, they wanted a sponsor. As soon as racing got back online properly, they wanted a sponsor, a young guy named Jonathan Palmer. So... Um, that got back online again. Uh, we raced in, would have been 79 and 80 and with Formula Fords for Jonathan Palmer. And uh, then in 81, we went into Formula 3. We, we went bought a Formula 3 car and raced in Formula 3. We won the Formula 3 championship with Jonathan in Britain. So that was, that was a good, good move forward. Yeah, nice steady progress. And so you're working on all aspects of the car, right? you know, yeah. By then, I was mechanic. doing everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was cleaning the wheels and putting the engines in and changing the clutches or doing whatever needed doing on the cars. I wouldn't. I at that time I wasn't the lead mechanic. I was one of the mechanics on the car. But the following year, I was more of a lead mechanic. We had a young man named um, Kiki Mansella. He was um, from Argentina, and uh, just as we took him on and wanted to go racing, we went to war with Argentina. And we carried on running the program with Kiki driving, even though we were at war with Argentina over the Falkland Islands. Right, interesting. Yeah. And uh, his money that he brought with us, just its value just plummeted. So we... It kind of hurt us pretty hard yeah. financially, but we managed. We managed to get through the year, and we got. Uh, we that year we finished second in the championship. So how did he? How how was he during that? Was he kind of just oh, maintained neutral? Just he was. He was neutral. fabulous. He was. One, he's one of the greatest personalities I've ever met. Because I've heard that I'm name. Still in touch with him. He was a. Was he a Formula One driver? Yeah, at some he drove point? Formula One. Yeah, because yeah. that's. How I would know isn't that name. In, yeah. in winning that, in coming second in the championship, he got given a chance to drive for Formula One McLaren, and then he went off and did a fairly successful Formula Two team, uh, Formula Two season. Then he had another crack at Formula One, uh, but finally ended up in America running Indy cars. But uh, oh, maybe that's ran, what I know ran out, of, ran out yeah. of money and. Uh, um, but a uh, terrific guy and a good driver too, so yeah, that, he was fun. What an oh, interesting comment! You're gonna have a driver from some place, and you go yeah. you go to war with it. Yeah, with it his was home a, company country. It was a very strange situation. But the the thing of it was because the war was so distant, and it was very short. I mean, it was just a quick thing, and it was in the Falkland Islands, so it was way. There really wasn't any animosity in England at all among the racing fans to, to Kiki. Uh, that was what we called um, Enrique. His name was Enrique, but we called him Kiki. And there was no animosity to him at all. In fact, people were supporting him quite strongly. So it was, yeah. it was, it was a nice thing. It was like we were kind of on the 
platform of, you know, motor racing brings people together. It doesn't divide them. And uh, so we thought that was, that was a good way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <clears throat> wow. So then um, you work with all these formula teams. What What is the one aspect of the formula cars that you found either interesting or complicated that specifically, is it trying to get the aero package working or is it more motor? I, I was I was interested in that, but what, and I don't quite know how it happened, but where I gravitated to after I'd done um, some more Formula 3, I came to the States and worked uh, for IndyCar teams. And um, it wasn't long into my IndyCars that I gravitated towards doing shock absorbers. Um, and uh, the guy who does shocks is usually a little bit standalone away from the cars. He works closely with the engineers, um, takes the shocks off the cars, rebuilds them or recalibrates them to what the engineer wants as to how he wants to make a change for the driver, dyno the shock absorbers to see if you achieved what was desired, and then hand them back to the mechanics who then put them on a car. So it's a slightly it's a slightly unique position on a race team, but it was back then, but now nowadays there are more positions all over the car that are are like are like that, where there are guys who look after the the wheel bearings, there are guys who look after the brakes, there are guys who look after the steering, there are guys who look after the gearboxes. And uh, so there's a much more um, broader um, kind of workplace for... for, for Even uh, in IndyCars? In IndyCars are... Uh, it it was sure that way. I'm not sure it is right <clears throat> now. I haven't done IndyCars for a few years and I know things have changed dramatically. It's because it's much more of a spec series now. But when I was doing it, um, it was... It got a bit more because I'm sure way. Formula One's that way when the teams has oh, yeah. 150, 300 Definitely people Formula or something, one. you know. And the way an IndyCar team was structured when I left it, we did have a shock guy. He was off doing his shock absorbers. I was one of the last jobs I had as an IndyCar um, mechanic was in the sub assembly area where I had an area to myself in the workshop where I rebuilt all the drive shafts, all the wheel bearings, um, all the steering racks, all the all the smaller assemblies of the car. And um, then I would hand those off to the mechanics and they would put the car together. The additional responsibility in that area was that I would build the car virtually on a computer um, using a lifing program so that I would know I could build the car on a spreadsheet and then I could hit a button that said, okay, we're going to do 375 miles at this test or whatever. And then components would start popping up red that um, were not going to make that distance without being lifed out. And then a decision would have to be made, well, is that component, um, is it worth just stretching it 20 miles or should we not use that component and use something different because we don't want to change it while we're there. Or obviously during a race, you don't, I mean, you don't, you don't want a component to life out during wow, a race. Wow, that's so, fascinating. So it was, a, it was I worked with the, with the people who built the program. It was quite early in the computer world this and is it was, in the late 80s, early 90s? Uh, it was early. late 80s, yeah, yeah. mid-80s, late 80s. And it was, uh, it was basically an Excel program that we put together with just a spreadsheet. And we just put a load of micros into the boxes and, uh, to make things happen. And it, it, it worked out really well. It was very successful, I thought. The old days, they used to do it on little manila cards. You know, the component would be written on a card and then you'd build the card in a, in a shoebox. And then you'd look through the cards and see... <laughs> see what was going to break down but um you know the computer really opened it up for us on that and also the other the other area and how i got into it 
was doing the shock absorbers, we would use the computer to control the dyno. Um, and the dyno would run the shock absorber up and down at a certain speed or with a certain force. And then we'd read the, we'd get, we'd get a um, performance curve um, off the dyno that would show us what the shock absorber is doing. And um, that we could print that out and hand it to the engineer and he could decide whether that's what he wanted and, or maybe make a change and hand it back to us. But the computer was involved in that too. And it was one of the first things that the computer was involved in in, in motorsport. Um, so that was that was fun and that was exciting. That was groundbreaking. That yeah. was all new. It's it's not new anymore. I mean, the first the first program we had to control shocks was in DOS. Yeah. And if you remember DOS and how complicated it was, well, not complicated, but how tiresome it was to use because you, the way you had to in line uh, line code at least, yeah, at least line exactly. commands, I should say. Um, yeah. it, it it was quite a quite a task. Nowadays, it's so much easier where you just pop windows here and there, but. Um, it was interesting back then to me. I, I found it fascinating to be able to use a computer to, to, to come up, crunch the numbers for us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I just, when you talk about making a shock absorber or, or redoing it, I've never had one apart. I, it would be fun to take one apart to see what it looks like. Oh, they're, they're fascinating. And, and, and it's, it's come all the way. We were, we were, I went to, um, after I'd done IndyCars for a while, I, I, I went to Formula One. Uh, I went to the Ligier Formula One team, and I worked there for a year and a half, and I did a little bit of, mostly mechanicing there, but I did a little bit of shock absorber work there in their hydraulic department, and we were using shock absorbers back then that had um, three-way adjustment that we could adjust the, the bump, the rebound, and the, the bump in two different speeds, low speed and high speed. And we now use on these cars here in this workshop, we have shock absorbers in here that are three-way adjustable. In fact, we have one car that has four-way adjustables. Um, so he has two speeds on his compression damping as well, which is when the wheel goes up. Um, that's, that's two speeds on the compression, and he has two speeds on the rebound when the wheel goes down. So we can control the high speed and the low speed on both ends of the, the, the suspension travel. Wow. And it's it's... We don't have any equipment here to really dive inside the shocks and find out what's going on, but we can at least twiddle the knobs and see if we're going in the right direction. At Fall Line up north, we do have the equipment. Too. So how did you get involved with, with, with Fall Line? Um, or, or how long have you been? Let's say, so what, what, how long have you been? Have long have you I've, been, been I've been here. My first season at the club here was in 2010. And the, the way I got involved was kind of strange, but um, if you're... If you're familiar with IndyCars, they went through a, a period where there was two series. There was the Champ Car Series and the IRL Series. IRL I, standing for Indy Racing League. League. Yeah. yeah, That's when the Indy owners of the Indy 500 track decided, hey, we are big enough, we to can start our, our own, own league and we'll just call it our own thing. That's it right. came from, it used to be CART, That's right. which is Championship Auto, Auto Racing Auto Teams. Racing. Yeah. So... So this was, yeah, I and mean, Indy was big at the time. We yeah. didn't, we didn't, as a fan, we didn't like the split, but um, right. <clears throat> it was, it was big. Yeah. Well, I, I ended up on one of the teams that went the champ car route, um, which was fine. I mean, uh, I didn't really um, try to move over to the IRL. I, I, I was happy in doing champ cars, but uh, there came a time where champ car pretty much just shut down and the IRL took over and a, a lot of people moved from champ car to the IRL. I didn't. I went to a company in Indy um, called Prototype Development and started working on um, race car development projects 
or um, even engineering projects that weren't related to race cars, but mostly race car stuff. Um, and that business had a little bit of a, um, a slow spell. So a friend of mine who worked there and I decided that we should go looking for work. And uh, so we went on to Craigslist and there was an advert on Craigslist for a mechanic, uh, a race car mechanic for Joliet, Illinois. And I figured it must be the Autobahn because it's pretty much the only racing going on here. Um, so I applied for it and that's how I ended up here at Four Line. Where did your friend end up going? Did he? He retired. No, he retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's older than I am and he now... He's now quite happy in Florida, but he's the one who pointed the ad out to me. He found it on Craigslist. We were looking for welding work. We were looking for um, any uh, like industrial plant that had uh, machinery that broke and needed welding up because we'd heard of all the work that was done where um, people would go in and disassemble the machinery completely and load it on trucks and take it away to another facility and then they'd weld it up and put it all back together again and check it works mm -hmm. and they'd disassemble it and take it back to the original plant and uh, my friend and I decided well we put a welder in a truck we're just gonna we're gonna cut this down <laughs> to something and that was our plan but it never happened <laughs> <laughs> so um, so fall line so tell us a little, so fall line it's one of the four um, racing um, shops here at the Audubon. Yes. And primarily BMWs? Well, um, let me go and give you the, the bit of the story behind it, and that, and that really explains why it's the way it is with okay, BMWs. Okay. But um, uh, the story as I know it is that um, the owner, um, Mark Bowden, wanted to go racing. And... Uh, he was looking for, for someone to um, prepare and build him a car. I think he built. I think he bought a car initially, but he wanted someone to upgrade the safety equipment and then and then run, build the car for him. And um, I don't think he found what he was looking for, so he started Four Line with the emphasis on um, safety and then on fulfilling what the customer wants out of his race car experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, instead of looking through a Jegs catalog and putting together a Corvette with all the latest and greatest and hottest stuff on it and building something that turns out to be a monster Mark's um, way was was to look for a car that could be um, installed with a bunch of safety equipment something that was reliable um, so that the, the person could come to the track and actually learn how to drive properly um, not, and not be tied up with all the complications of the car being unreliable and off the track and all that. And because of that, the BMW E46 turned out to be um, a very big car in the four-line history because it, it fulfilled what they were looking for in a car that they could um, not modify it, that much in terms of the engine, but put on a proprietary exhaust, um, some better suspension um, in terms of shock absorbers, um, some better brakes, and then you've got a, a really reliable platform to go and learn how to drive. And, and it was that E36? E46. E46. We did do some E36s. In fact, we have two of them in here now um, that were E36s, but, but it was the E46 that turned into a... 
What kind of motor is that? An inline. It's an inline six, six? in the okay. E36s and the 46s. Yeah, it's a straight six. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they they don't still make that car, right? No. What uh, the car they make now um, that is their equivalent is an E92, and um, we're well, line is working very hard right now developing an E92 to run as a T2 car, which is um, a lightly modified car in the SCCA racing series. Okay. Um, Mark Bowden is uh, driving one, I believe this weekend, or he was up to the weekend he was testing it. And uh, they're trying to get it uh, developed so that they can run it um, later on in the runoffs, the SCCA runoffs. Hmm. So, he, so at this is that when Fall Line when you came here was did Fall Line already started up north or? Oh yeah, my, Fall Line when I came, when I came was um, uh, they've actually moved to Buffalo Grove from where they were. They were in um, where was it Holst Road um, in in Chicago, and they moved to a bigger facility in uh, Buffalo Grove. And that's and do they just do race cars up there also? Oh yeah, they that's where we do all the builds. Uh, oh. They have a full fabrication shop that does does all the um, the roll cages. Um, they strip the cars there. They put the roll cages in. Uh, they they literally build the cars there in in house. Oh, okay, and then they bring them down here. And right? then if they if if the customer wants his car down here, you can bring it down here. But we have a lot of Four Line has a lot of customers who don't really have their cars here. They they keep their cars at Buffalo Grove, and they really do the more SCCA Trans Am events. Um, they come down here once in a while. This is just a facility that they can come to if they need to test their car. So, hmm. but yeah, we're looking at the at the shop, and there's a few Porsches and um, a Miata, and mostly, but yeah, mostly BMW. So the so the the way this is kind of set up is the customer calls up, says, "I'm going to be out for the ten o'clock session tomorrow," and exactly you have everything ready for him, and he jumps yeah. in the. Yeah, he, if he, he gives me a call or an email or a message and um, tells me when he wants to be here and by the time he gets here, I'm hopefully the car is sitting out by the front door with the engine warmed up, the wheels torqued, the tire pressure set and the windscreen clean and it's ready to go. That's awesome. And then when he's done with the car, um, they can just let me know if there was any concerns or if there's anything that they want and uh, it could be a new set of tires, it could be a new set of brakes. Um, and I'll look the car over also and contribute to that as to whether they need that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then we'll try and move on and be ready for next time. Um, most of the customers come out um, every week. Some of them only come out every month and some of them a little few rarer than that. But, um, you know, we're, we're always here. We're open. Um, we, we could be open six days a week. We're definitely open five days a week. And uh, any time they want their car, they just let me know and the car will be ready for them. It's kind of the top tier of the club. You can, you can drive your car to the club and go out on track. You can tow your car in a trailer and go out on track. Or you can have a building of your own here at the facility and take your car out of there and then go on track. Or the top tier would be you keep your car here and I look after it for you. And then you just show up and uh, drive it. And that's why it's arrive and drive. Well, yeah, that's that's totally cool. What um, do you do you find? What is the more of this type of system right here? What is one of the more things that you really enjoy working? Do you enjoy like? Do you look at the 
some of the data from the car too and its performance to make adjustments there? Well, I, I listen to the drivers and, and maybe make an adjustment if they've got um, some concern about how the car's driving. I don't do too much on data um, and uh, there's reasons for that, but I, I, I really don't um, go into the data. And a lot of cars don't really have data acquisition systems that would make it um, that useful. But uh, really, we just want the drivers to be comfortable. We want them to be um, content. We want them to try and achieve the best time they can do. And um, if there's any way we can help them do that, we'll do it. The main thing is keeping the cars reliable. Downtime is the enemy. Is um, you, you know, if you can't run your car because it's not working, then that's that's not what you want. So that's why we, we run these BMWs, because they're so reliable. But we also have some Porsches here. We have a, um, a Porsche uh, Cayman over there that uh, um, won uh, the T2 championship at the runoffs a few years ago. And um, we've got another Porsche here that uh, is a T2 car. And we have several of those in the four-line stable. We only have one here right now, but we usually have uh, more. And it's a, it's a 997.2 uh, uh, T2 car. So it has... What does T2 mean? Is it... T2 is a class in um, SCCA. Okay. It's not a stock class, but it's not a highly modified class. Um, you're allowed to do um, a few things on the car to make it safer, mm-hmm. and uh, but you're not allowed to like seriously tune the engine or um, there's restrictions on what you can put on as brakes. Um, the, the Porsches actually run, I think they're pretty much stock brakes. The BMWs, you were allowed to upgrade a little because the stock brakes weren't quite up to it. But, uh, yeah, I started, uh, we raced yesterday um, in the chase race, and uh, I got 10th, and my wife won her division. Yeah, she won. Good for her. Yeah. Um, in the We used to also do the open division in the karting race, and um, she's won the last two times, first place, and I have not, but I'm still leading the points in that division. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but she, uh, uh, so she was out there having, having a blast, and I, in qualifying, I went out there, I have a Miata, and it completely accelerated, completely talk about keeping it running. You know, I already missed, my car broke. After qualifying, I came off, my car broke, so I missed a race. And so I'm unqualifying, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. The car, it completely stopped. The accelerator didn't move. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it moved, but nothing would happen. And I, it was the craziest thing ever. The mm-hmm. motor was running, and I limped it off. Had a really good place to, to come off and shut it off and turn it back on, and it worked the rest of the day. I'm like, oh, It did work? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I did the race, did everything. It worked just <laughs> fine. I have... That's bizarre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. Yeah. You know, I wish it was, if the wheel would came off, at least we know what happened, right? <laughs> right. It's like, I can come back and say, hey, the wheel came off, can you please fix it? Yeah. yeah, that was a little frustrating yesterday. So yes, keeping the car, the reliability and keeping the car running is is so paramount. Yeah. Well, I think I think our attitude is, um, is that a lot of these guys who have the wherewithal to do this, they have... Um, serious responsibilities both to themselves and to employees and to family um, which is why we push very very hard for the safety of the cars you'll you'll notice the roll cages in all the cars we built are super super strong they're well known in the industry as being some really bulletproof 
uh, roll cages. And the other side of it is that the, the, these, these people who we want to keep safe, their time is valuable. They don't want to be here standing around while we fix the freebish bushing on their their cars. They, they want to be able to get in, turn the key, drive it, and um, execute the sessions that they'd planned to do, and then come in and, and go off and get on with their busy lives. And that's, and that's really the premise of, of what we're doing here, is uh, trying to keep people on track. And uh, I mean, like I say, there, there, there has been people who have showed up and they want us to look after their cars and they've been to the Jegs catalog and they've bought every upgrade that they can find for their Mustang or their Corvette and they, they've really created a monster that just doesn't want to run, it doesn't want to be reliable and, um, and they're, they're just giving them times a lot of time in the pit lane. They're not, you know, we, we want to run, we want to go out there and circulate and, and, and give, the, give the drivers the time they need to improve and not have the frustration of a car not running being mm -hmm. the main problem. Yeah. So that's, that's our aim. I mean, not, not saying it doesn't happen. It has happened um, <laughs> where we've had problems with cars that we haven't been able to fix um, as soon as we would have liked to, but you know, that, that's life, unfortunately. Right. So, um, well, this has been fantastic. So, how can people get a hold? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, well, the uh, Four Line has its own website, okay. which is fourlinemotorsports.com. Um, I'm available at Dave at fourlinemotorsports.com. Um, there's also Four Line is also on Facebook, so you can follow the uh, the racing, what's going on there, and. Uh, I think they publish the results and such of what happens. Um, but basically, we're at the track. We're, we're next door to Eurosport. If you're familiar with um, how the track works, we're between Eurosport and Stradale. Um, anyone's welcome anytime. Come on in and see us. Yeah. Discuss your car. If there's anything you want from us, um, we, we encourage you to come not with your own preconceived ideas of what you want as a car, but come with your aims and aspirations of what you want to achieve in motor racing and we'll advise you on what kind of a car would fit the bill to you to get the most out of with the best value for money. So that you're not taking parts off your newly created car and putting on new hot rod parts and throwing away the one that you just bought and put on. And We, we do a more of a progression type um, system where some of these cars are a little more um, than, than stock where they have the cages and the safety equipment and the suspension and the brakes but um, maybe the next stage up is not more horsepower from the motor but actually better braking system or some better shock absorbers um, and we can advise you on all that and uh, let you know where we think you should go next. Also um, a big part of this and we're we have a little bit of a void here right now, but a big part of this is um, driver coaching. Um, you can always get more out of your car by learning how to drive it better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes that's more important than trying to pump more horsepower into the engine. Just learn how to drive better. It's more enjoyable. It's, <laughs> it's more satisfying. It's funny. We, we had this conversation this morning sitting in our... We're, camping here this weekend and we were all sitting around in our living room talking about how my son you know we were just talking about our this particularly the the karting aspect and you know where I said you know the karts 
10%, driver's 90%. However, my son thinks the cart is 70% and the driver's 30%. Yeah. You know? And uh, he, he, I, I will admit that he has, the last few times he's come in and said, hey, there's something wrong with the cart. I go, there's nothing wrong with the cart. You're jerking his steering wheel around or you're you know, doing this and you're not being smooth. And he goes, no, something's wrong. And I go, and I roll my eyes and turn up the brakes dragging or yeah. you know, something. So he is, quite honestly, 100% of the time he's come in and said something's wrong. There, as it actually is something yeah. wrong. Well, that, that's, one of the, um, that's one of the conundrums of this whole thing is that... Uh, you know, you want a driver to go faster and you want him... Sometimes some things do go wrong with the car that maybe they are not performing as best. And that's where... That's my job. That's that's where I come in. I'm supposed to keep the cars in tip-top condition and then uh, get the, make them able so that the driver can get the very best out of them. And that's, that's really what I do. So, Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on. It was, it was, I, I had not been in Fall Line before and you were... We stepped in yesterday, and you were so welcoming and and kind to sit down with us today and, and share your story. I just I just think it's awesome, and uh, I just encourage everybody when you're around the track to come in and, and say hi. Yeah, well, you're welcome. The door's open. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.